All right, it's been wonderful to be able to sing those songs together. I love the progression in the songs that uh, went and moved from our uh, gracious, great God to our fairest Lord Jesus. Then uh, it was a privilege to be able to sing with you just recently there about the church arising uh, to give glory and honor to him. And it's been a privilege to see and to think about how God is going to use the book of Romans to challenge us. It will not only expand our understanding of the gospel, Lord willing, it's our prayer that throughout our time in Romans, God will commit us to it, commit us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to know it and obey it, so that we can rally together with it uh, to reach the gospel, uh, reach the world for Jesus Christ. Um, So, Uh, Looking forward to seeing how God's going to continue to do that. Uh, The last few weeks, God has really used what Paul has said in the introduction regarding himself uh, to encourage me. Hopefully the same uh, is true for you. Uh, I am so thankful for the first verse of Romans. Paul, servant of Jesus Christ. uh, For the way Paul described his own identity. That uh, he is servant of Jesus Christ. That's why he's here He's an apostle. He's separated to the gospel of God. And uh, then last week, uh, I was really moved by the fact that um, Paul also, in describing his calling, said that it was given to him for the sake of his name, for the sake of God's name. And we took some time to consider that it is right for us to be God-centered uh, in our life, day by day, because God himself is God-centered. That's why he created this world, for the glory and honor of his own name. That's the only way people will be converted, is through his name. And so it's right and loving for God to be that way. I hope that those things have been encouraging to you uh, as well. Um, Today we're going to continue our study in Romans 1, verses 8 through 15. And we're going to consider Paul's opening thanksgiving. The introduction is 17 verses. Uh, starts out the first seven verses are an opening greeting. Remember Paul, uh, from Paul, a lot about Paul, to the Roman believers. A little bit about the Roman believers in verse 7. After the opening greeting, he gives the opening thanksgiving, verses 8 through 15, where he'll uncover some of the obligations that he felt because of the gospel's entrance into his life. And then the final part of the introduction is the opening thesis statement, uh, verses 16 and 17, which are very important for the whole course of the book, but I will leave that sermon for another day. Um, as we look at the opening Thanksgiving, Romans 1, 8 through 15, Paul describes these obligations he feels. If you look at the first words of verse 14, you'll know why I describe it as obligation. Paul says, I am under obligation. I think in this paragraph, Paul will describe the different ways he feels obligated as an apostle and as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, when I was praying this morning uh, before the service, I felt like, and after I went through the sermon once or twice, that God would have me make a, a little bit of a change. And, you know, since God wants me to do that, I'm going to try to do that. And you're a bright, you're a bright crew, right? Uh, you can handle this as well. And so um, I'm going to include uh, verses uh, 14 and 15 under my second point. 
So uh, I'm going to talk about two, two obligations that we feel because of the gospel. Uh, an obligation to God and an ob- obligation to fellow believers. When we get later in the sermon, I'll help you know where the change occurs, okay? But uh, today, we're going to talk about debt, right? We're going to, on a rainy day, it's supposed to rain all day today, and uh, rain into the morning tomorrow, you know, good things, we have good indoor activities to do today. Um, on a rainy day, we're going to talk about debt, the sort of debt every believer should feel. This is a good thing for us to consider. Uh, it's good debt, uh, good obligations, and so uh, we'll look at that together today. So Paul talks in these verses about two obligations that he that relate to two relationships that he has. Uh, first, in verse 8, is an obligation to God. Okay, so I, like Pastor James, I have a PowerPoint and I need to advance it. Obligation to God. Look with me at verse 8. It says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now here we begin by asking the question, uh, to whom was Paul thankful in verse 8? And it's, it's pretty easy, right? If you've got the, the biblical text in front of you there, the answer is my God. The main verb of the section is thank. The subject is Paul. The object is God, my God. Paul gives thanks to God. Now, why does Paul thank God for what he, what is happening with the Roman believers. Why wouldn't he thank them for what is going on? And uh, I, I think the answer to this foundationally is because he knows their faith is entirely a gift from God. Okay, that's, that's why. Okay. Uh, a little bit later on in a parallel passage in the book, he returns to the idea of thanking. I want you to see, this is not just the introduction, but later on, Romans 6, verse 17. You can look there, I'm going to read it in just a second. Romans 6, verse 17, and, and listen to how he does this. He says, but thanks be to God. It's not unusual for Paul to do this. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Thanks be to God. You were once slaves, but God did this work. Salvation is a gift from God. Couldn't help but think of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 when we think along these lines. Do you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your doing. It is the what? Gift of God. Or from God. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Paul was obligated to thank God, not boast in the Romans for something that God had done. God is the one who gives people faith. I I couldn't, also uh, this week, uh, a verse ran across my screen, I was doing some other things, and someone 
use this verse, but there it is again. But this is about Paul's apostolic ministry. Galatians 2, verse 9 says, uh, When James and Cephas, or Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, listen here, perceived the grace that was given to me, the grace that was given to me, they extended the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and, and Paul. It was grace given. God had given this. Paul's apostleship came from God as well. And so this is true of any grace that anyone might perceive in us. Now, I want to uh, answer just two other quick questions about verse 8 before we move on. First, for whom is Paul thankful in verse 8? And uh, hopefully you can see this very easily there, verse 8. For all the Roman believers. And then second meditation here is why is he thankful I think sometimes it's good to ask these sort of questions in the text. So as we're meditating upon it, God can do everything he wants to do with the biblical passage. Who's he thankful for? For all of the Roman believers. Why? Well, you keep reading, because of their faith. Because of their faith that is proclaimed all around the world. See, I think Paul knew, he realized, how the existence of a growing community of believers in the world's greatest city was encouraging to other believers. Here, God was doing a great work in the city of Rome, the capital of the world. There were hundreds, no, really thousands of people who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and this was a huge blessing to others. So, Paul thanks God for this. Okay, now before we advance to the next idea, I think it would be good for us to stop and learn from this. This is how we should talk. This is how we should behave when we see something significant in the life of another brother or sister. Okay. We can be thankful for them, but I think it's most important for us to give God direct praise and thanksgiving for what he's doing in them. To say something like this when we come to them, I'm so thankful for what I see God doing in your life. God is at work in you. To me, and you just talked about four people who impacted him. Imagine people like this coming to children and saying, I'm so thankful for the work that I see God or Jesus doing in your heart. Giving praise and glory to the one who deserves it. We owe God thanks. As I just take verse 8, we owe God thanks. That's the obligation. We're in debt. It's a good debt. We owe God thanks for what he's doing around the world in the life of brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, now uh, we're going to advance to number two, and that is uh, our obligation to fellow Christians. Paul reveals, uh, and, and this is where in your notes, if you've got uh, the handout or even on the PowerPoint, sorry I wasn't able to change it uh, after my prayer time today, you will find two obligations. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take number three, obligation toward all the nations, and I'm going to put it underneath here. So there are three obligations that we should feel toward fellow Christians. Okay. Uh, we'll start working through the passage, and I'll try to be as clear as I can be now that I've confused everyone. Okay. So the first obligation um, that uh, we should feel is prayer. Prayer. Um, 
Look with me at verse 9 and verse 10a. It says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. And that's where I would end this thought, although it's, it's going to continue, it's related. In verse 9 here, Paul gives evidence of the thanksgiving giving that he has given to God by calling God to the witness stand. He says, for God is my witness. And these are not light words for Paul to use. He is using courtroom imagery here when he calls God to the witness stand to verify what only God could verify. Right? Since Paul's prayers were primarily private for the Romans, there is only one true witness who can confirm the nature of his prayers, and that's God. Now, what is God, what is Paul calling God to the witness stand for? It's his prayer, his intercessory prayers for the Roman believers. The text says he's, he's calling God to witness that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Okay, and there are two further things about what Paul calls God to the witness stand here for that I think are impactful, okay, in verse nine, right? Um, it's easy for us to read that language and not really be affected by it. So I want to kind of consider it in, in light of Paul's life and ours. Okay, first thing I point out is notice, I want you to see the regularity with which Paul prays for the Roman believers. You see something in verse 9 that would make you think, uh, he was praying quite regularly for them. It says, without ceasing. Every time... Paul prays, he mentions the Roman believers. Uh, the words without ceasing come from one word in the original, and it's used uh, in some literature of the irritation of a cough. You ever been sick before? And maybe right now, I'm sorry, you're sick, and you're fighting the urge to cough. You try to control it, but you can't keep it under. You keep stuffing it down, but then finally, you know, public, you start coughing. Every time Paul prays, he can't hold this down. Can't hold this down. Without ceasing, he shouts forth in prayer for the Romans. The regularity, that's pretty impressive. But I also want to show you the range of Paul's intercessory prayers. And what is significant here is the reminder that Paul had never met many of the Roman believers. Well, he mentions some of them uh, by name in the final chapter. I think over 20, like 22 or 23 names. He does not have a personal relationship with most of them. You say, how many? Hundreds or it's better. And I'm not exaggerating here. I think thousands. Thousands of believers he's never met before in the churches of Rome. And so the point I want to just draw your attention to for a second is these are not believers in Paul's local church. Remember, he's, he's sent out from church to Antioch. When he writes this, he's, he's in Corinth. Okay, these are not like believers that he's worshiping with in Corinth or Antioch. These are not believers who are part of his community group or small group that he's mentioning regularly, consistently in prayer. Right? These are people, for the most part, whom he has never met before people from whom he's separated by hundreds of miles in an ancient world. 
All right, so I want to think about the range of Paul's prayer. And I want you to examine your own prayer life for a moment here. Paul's intercessory prayers for believers go well beyond his immediate sphere of influence. I love what D.A. Carson wrote about Paul's prayers. It's in this little book called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. It's an examination of Paul's prayers. And Carson said this, he said, Praying like Paul is a critical discipline that will enlarge our horizons, increase our ministry, and help us become world Christians. I think it's worth reading parts of that again. It will help us enlarge our horizons, increase our ministry, and help us become world Christians. Do we pray like this? Perhaps you've never considered the value of praying like this for believers across the world. It will make you more of a world Christian. Of course, one of the ways we can do this is something Pastor Dan just produced for our assembly, a little manual, a guide on our missionaries and how they're trying to impact brothers and sisters and unbelievers across the world for the glory of God. If you pray simply through this book, you will be praying for believers in Richmond, Virginia. You'll be praying for believers in Beckley, West Virginia, in Logan, Utah, and Colorado City, Arizona. You'll be praying for believers in the Hampton Roads attempting to reach Slavic people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll be praying for people, for believers in Jacuchinga, Brazil. Praying for believers in Monte, Argentina, in... Uh, Toulon, France, in Alicante, Spain, in Lahore, Pakistan, in India. You'll be praying for people in uh, Kaluan, Philippines, Central Asia. Pastor Dan might have other ways for you to become a world Christian in your prayers too, but this would be a good start. This would be a good start. Do you pray like that? For people you've never met? Paul did, and I think it'd be good for us to follow that process. So his obligation for distant fellow believers included prayers, intercessory prayers. We can learn and grow in that. But then secondly, it also uh, includes uh, physical presence, uh, hopeful physical presence among the Romans. This is how I take Romans uh, 1 Middle verse 10 through verse 13. Okay, and so um, here by presence, Paul really wants to minister among the Romans. There are two things he really wants the Romans to get, just speaking very plainly. First of all, he wants them to know that he prays for them a lot. That's what verses 9 and 10 are about. And then secondly, he wants them to know that he really longs to see them. He wants to get there. He wants to minister among them. So let's read verses 10b through 13. It says, Asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest 
among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul really wants to make it to Rome. And after stating that in verse 10, the question that drives verses 11 through 13 is why. Why does he want to get there? Um, he gives, I think, three good reasons here for why he wants to get there. Um, first, his presence would benefit the Roman believer spiritually. If you're taking notes in the handout, that's a long blank. Okay. He, he knows that if he can get to Rome... His presence would benefit the Roman believers spiritually. That's verse 11. This is where Paul prays that he might impart some spiritual gift among them. You see that? That leads us with the question, what spiritual gift does Paul want to give the Roman believers? Matter of fact, even this past week, I had someone come up to me and say, yeah, what is this? He says, I want to impart some spiritual gift to you. What does Paul mean? What's he doing here? And and there, there are two possible ways I think it could be taken. Um, it could mean that Paul wanted to bestow upon them a spiritual gift, a miraculous endowment. You know, all the gifts uh, that you can read about in Romans or 1 Corinthians, gifts like prophecy and all that kind of stuff, tongues, uh, faith, hospitality, giving, all those sort of things. But the question I have is, does Paul really think that he is going to be handing out spiritual gifts to the Romans when he gets there. I've got healing for you, tongues for you, what do you want? Prophecy for you, uh, faith for you. Is that what he's doing? Now, he might mean this indirectly. okay? Because uh, when he does write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, he, he says, fan the, fl- fan the flame of the gift that was given to you by the laying on of hands of the elders. Okay, but theologically, Paul doesn't normally talk this way because he will normally describe the source of spiritual gifts as being from whom? The Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 8, for instance, is this, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. All thing, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he chooses. Okay, so the Spirit of God is the source of spiritual gifts. So when Paul says this, he might mean that, but I think instead... Um, he's simply talking about a desire to benefit them spiritually, to make significant spiritual impact in their lives through the gifts that God has given to him as an apostle. Okay, so Paul says, can't wait to impart some spiritual gift to you. I think he's just talking about, like, I'm going to use my gifts. I think it's going to benefit the church. Okay, but, but how does that make you feel? Right? If... If there were a traveling preacher who wrote a letter to the Church of God in a Colonial Baptist Church in Virginia Beach, and he said, um, he said uh, that he longs to come see us so that we would experience the spiritual gift that comes from his presence. 
How might we take that? Okay, and that leads us to his second reason. Um, and so in verse 12, Paul's presence would also bring about mutual edification. It might sound arrogant for uh, Paul to speak of the personal benefits the Romans would enjoy through his ministry, so he qualifies or clarifies the idea here. He says that he too will be edified by interaction with them. You might think, well, what, what possibly could new believers in Rome, uneducated believers who don't know much about the gospel, what possibly could they give an apostle? Well, the Holy Spirit leads Paul to write this. I think in order to demonstrate that distinctive perspectives and gifts of every believer produces mutual strengthening and encouragement in the body of Christ. Distinctive perspectives and gifts of every believer are used by God to produce mutual strengthening and encouragement in the body of Christ. Listen, I know there, there's, a, there's a believer in our assembly who doesn't think very highly of himself. Talk with him about this often. And uh, he's going through a whole host of physical and emotional challenges. But I, I just tell you, brothers and sisters, how much that believer has meant to me in the seven years that I've been here. And how God has used this brother and his love for the Word and for Scripture to help a whole host of us. His presence will mean mutual edification for Christ. His presence then also, verse 13, would increase his spiritual harvest. Okay, and so let's look at verse 13 again. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. This is like an emphatic way of saying, I want you to be aware of something. That I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. I think God has prevented him. God is the actor here that has prevented him from coming, just like in Romans 15. In order that, and here's the reason or purpose, that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul wants the Romans to know that it's been his long-standing intention to come to them so that he might reap spiritual fruit in the city of Rome. I think this can speak of the fruit of new converts. It can also speak of the fruit related to spiritual growth, aiding spiritual growth in believers. But, but regardless, he knew that being present in Rome would mean more fruit for him in that city. And that's another reason he can't wait to come. Okay? So, Paul felt an obligation. He felt two. An obligation to God. Right? To thank him for what he's doing. And an obligation to fellow Christians, even distant fellow Christians in Rome. What were his obligations? To pray for them. Right? And he wanted to be with them. Presence. The physical presence. Okay, now this is where everything changes on my PowerPoint. I'm so sorry. But hey, maybe it'll keep you awake at this point. Okay? Um, the third thing, uh, the third uh, way he would describe this obligation is it also includes a commitment to proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because of what God has done in his life, because of his call as an apostle, I have an obligation to pray for you. I have an obligation to come and see you and minister to you. And I have an obligation to proclaim 
the good news to you. Okay? Now, now that you got that, we'll uh, jump back into the confusing outline. Okay, obligation to all Gentiles. All right, but there are a few things I do want you to see. You have two blanks. I want you to get those so you don't come and talk to me afterwards about not getting the blanks. Um, I think we can see clearly his debt in verse 14. All right, and so um, we'll look first at that. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. Here, the word obligation in the original could and and sometimes is translated debtor. And I like that translation, actually. Noun, usually connected to the idea of debt. Paul says, I am a debtor. But there are two important things I want you to think about the debt that Paul feels. First, just looking in your Bible, uh, notice to whom Paul feels indebted. All right, I'm actually going to back this up. You don't need to see that question. But, but first, to whom does Paul feel indebted? He describes it, verse 15, to the Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, which I think is kind of two ways of describing classifications that relate to, to two people. Okay. Uh, Greeks is probably the easiest for us to understand as moderns. Uh, this refers not only to those who spoke Greek, but those who embraced and promoted Greek culture. Hellenistic people. Spoke Greek, promoted, embraced Greek culture. The word barbarians is more difficult. For us, like when we hear that. Unless you grew up on comic strips and know of Conan the Barbarian. Right, that might help you a little bit, I suppose. I, I, I can't say I really read those. Barbarian would refer to someone rugged and uneducated. The word is, uh, uh, the word is a, a certain type of, of speech called an onomatopoeia. It's a word that sounds like what it means. So when a Greek person heard someone speak in a different language, it sounded like bar, 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 bar. That's just everything, all these gutturals in a row. If you sound like a bar, 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 we'll call you a barbarian. Barbarian. A barbarian would then be a non-Greek speaking person. So some Gentiles spoke Greek, they're called Greeks. Some spoke different languages, they're called barbarians. These are the two categories of every Gentile person on the planet. So Paul's saying he feels indebted to all Gentiles. I think from the Greeks' perspective, they would think of themselves as being the educated ones and barbarians as being foolish. But this is where we need to consider another question, and that is, uh, how is Paul indebted to all these people? You ever ask yourself that question before? How did Paul get in debt to so many people? It's a good question to ask. And, and I'm really thankful for a scholar who's written a, a great resource on Romans, except for Romans 5 section. You can just put a little X over that and just get rid of that part. But John Stott. Okay, John Stott says this about debt, and I think it's really helpful. And then I'll put it in layman's terms. 
Uh, he says, there are in fact two possible ways of getting in debt. The first is to borrow money from someone, and that's what we understand regarding debt. The credit card, right? Bills. I borrowed something from someone, I now owe them. That's debt number one. But stock continues. The second type of debt is to be given money for someone by a third person. Okay, and this was really helpful to me. So let me, again, put it in our terms. If I were to loan you $100 today, which, good luck on that. (laughs) But if I were to loan you $100, loan, not give, you would be in debt to me, right? That's the debt we all understand. But it's the second option that I think better describes Paul's debt, okay? Uh, And so uh, the way I describe this, if I were to ask you to deliver $100 to someone else and you agreed, you would be in debt to that person for $100. Does that make sense? I give you $100 to take it to that guy back there. That, that, that whole way back there, you're now in debt to that person because you agreed to do this. I think this is the debt that Paul experiences and knows. He is a debtor, and you read, he's not a debtor to God necessarily. He's a debtor to all Gentiles. Barbarians, Greeks, wise, foolish, all of them. I'm in debt to all of them. Because God gave him something to give to them. And men and women, that is true. That is the sort of debt that all believers are under as well. Right? We have been given the Great Commission. Go and make disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has given to us a message. This is the deep missionary obligation that Paul felt as servant of Jesus Christ, but it is the deep missionary obligation that every one of us should feel. God has given to us the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. Right? He's given us that. And we should feel in debt to everyone around us to give this message, this gospel from God to them. Finally, This debt for Paul produces eagerness. Look at verse 15. So, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The word eager is only used two other times in the New Testament. Here it speaks of readiness or willingness that arises from the obligation or debt that God had placed upon Paul. More specifically, Paul is ready to preach the gospel, to announce the good news that he brings from God And there's one last significant observation we need to make. Okay, it's in verse 15. Okay, and since you're such a good crowd, you you did so well through all this curveballs with the outline. Sorry. This question's easy, but it's significant. Ready? To whom was Paul ready to preach the gospel? If you just had to use verse 15 to answer that question... To whom was Paul ready to preach the gospel? How would you answer it? Well, Paul says, to you who are in Rome, right? Pretty easy answer, okay? Now, this might be Paul's way of referring to the citizens or the inhabitants of the city of Rome and his desire to evangelize them. 
Could be. Could be like to you. And by you, I mean everyone in Rome. Or Roman inhabitants. But I think it's more natural to understand the to you who are in Rome as believers in Rome to whom he writes this letter. See, Paul wants to preach the gospel to the believers in Rome. Now, why would he do that? Like, aren't they already saved? Like, don't we just preach the gospel to unbelievers? Well, just a few thoughts here. First, Paul wants to preach the gospel to the believers in Rome because the gospel goes far deeper than we were normally able to understand when we first believed. When we first believe, we normally understand that we are sinners. We need to at least understand that we are sinners, and our sin separates us from God. We're under his wrath and condemnation, and will be so forever and ever, unless we believe in the name of Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. We believe that Jesus died on the cross, and he rose again to deliver us from our sins. Uh, you know, this, this is the, the message, this is the gospel that we proclaim, but... The gospel and its significance goes far deeper than many of us realize. I, I love the illustration. I can do met, no better than the illustration of James Montgomery Boyce in his book on Philippians. And I'll, I'll just read this to you because I think it's just a powerful illustration of the fact that the gospel goes far deeper than many of us sometimes understand. Uh, Boyce said, one local farmer from Luxor, Egypt, uh, tried to find a solid foundation for his home. And so he scratched around in the sand to find some bedrock on which to build. In time, he came upon a smooth surface, and so he erected his home there. In, in the desert, where the wind is constantly blowing and where the sands shift according to the air currents, anything permanent will cause the sand to shift away from it. And so as the sand drifted away from this man's cottage, the farmer deliv- uh, discovered that his house was actually built on a piece of hand-carved stone, presumably from an ancient temple. It was only after excavations had begun that the farmer realized that the stone was standing on a column, and after the excavations were completed, he found out that his home was nearly 80 foot above ground level, standing on a stone column. Boyce says, There is a parallel here to some people's understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is far more magnificent than perhaps we even understand. The foundation of our salvation is greater and deeper than we might ever understand in this life. And so it is noble and right for me to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to you if you believe in Jesus. Now, the second statement I would make about this is the gospel's implications also extend to every area of life. It is right for Paul to go to Rome to preach the gospel to Roman believers because the gospel's implications extend to every area of our life. It's like fingers that stretch out into all parts of how we live. There's a sense in which every Christian blessing and virtue is tied in some way to the good news of Jesus Christ that saves us. And so I agree with my friend Andy Nacelli, who wrote in his Romans commentary, 
See, the gospel is not simply for converting non-Christians. The gospel, especially as Paul unpacks it in Romans, is for building up Christians. It's for building up Christians. And so Paul's going to impact that in the first chapter of Romans, or he's going to unpack it in the first chapter of Romans, the first several chapters. He's going to describe the nature of the gospel, Romans 1, 18 through 4, 25. He's going to say this good news that comes from God is about God's righteousness, his righteousness that is against all forms of ungodliness, whether you're a Jewish person or you're a Gentile. All are under sin. This gospel reveals God's righteousness, and it comes, God's righteousness comes apart from the law of Moses. It doesn't come through that means, but it comes through faith, Romans chapter 4. He's going to tell us more about the power of the gospel in Romans 5 through 8, and that it delivers us from wrath. It delivers us from the condemnation of Adam's sin. It delivers us from the reign of and rule of sin. It delivers us from captivity to the law. It delivers us through the Holy Spirit's power from anything that threatens to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8. And then in Romans 9 through 11, it tells all about the history of this good news, including how it impacts Jew and Gentile. It impacts Jews in their past, present, and future, and how, and how Gentiles have been grafted into the people of God so that they can be saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's obligation that he felt to his fellow believers. His obligations were threefold, right? Pray, to enjoy physical presence and use his gifts with them there. And then finally, when there, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. To announce the good news. May we also use words to take the good news of Jesus Christ to our brothers and sisters here, brothers and sisters around the world, to unbelievers in our neighborhoods, and to the nations. Let's pray together. Lord, I do thank you for the privilege of taking 35, 40 minutes consider this section in Romans, we would all be so much better off if we understood that we had an obligation. First, we're obligated to thank you for what you're doing around the world in the hearts and lives of believers. Their faith is a gift. It's a gift. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done. It's not our own doing. It's a gift from God. And so we give all praise to you for what you're doing, both with us and with other believers around the world. Father, may we also then sense our obligation to fellow believers. We're in debt to them. To pray for them. Always in my prayers, asking to use our gifts when we have opportunity to minister with them for their spiritual benefit. And finally, to, when with them, open up our mouths to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are like Paul. You have saved us and given us a message
And that makes us debtor to people around us to proclaim this message that salvation is found through no other name. Lord, we thank you for how you're using this book to challenge us. We pray that we would all leave here today keenly aware of our debt to both you and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.